Hi, and welcome to Faculty Focus, a podcast supporting the clinical education community in Leicester. We bring you Educator CPD, showcase new initiatives, and shine a light on some of the faculty behind it all. In this episode, Paris, Deepti, and I review a paper on cognitive load theory. To set the scene, I quickly outline the human memory model and focus on working memory. We then discuss how cognitive load theory has a real impact on teaching and touch on how this is related to effective learning strategies. Expertise reversal effect, congruence, split attention principle and the modalities of working memory are covered and some other papers are signposted. We try and make sense of the variability principle and why you need to have cognitive load theory in mind when putting together a presentation. Right, well hello everyone. Um, This is the UHL Education Podcast. Uh, This podcast is part of the faculty-focused initiative at University Hospitals of Leicester, which aims really to support our educators and help to build a community of educators within Leicester. So what I'm going to do now is just introduce us all to the team. So, Paris, I'm going to start with you. Hi, guys. I'm Paris. Um, I'm an anaesthetic and intensive care fellow, uh, but also a medical education fellow within the ITAPS department. And Dipti? Hello, I'm Dipti Samani. I'm a consultant geriatrician. I'm working in the, mainly in the Leicester Royal Infirmary. I have a special interest in continence and I run the continence clinic. And I have been interested in education uh, for a long time and have recently joined formally the team by becoming undergraduate block lead for the older person's block in year three medicine. I'm Andrew Hughes, one of the anaesthetic consultants at University Hospitals Leicester uh, and also have a couple of roles in the education department uh, and within my own directorate. Uh, but this sort of podcast really falls under my faculty development role with the Department of Education. Uh, and like my two colleagues, I've been interested in education for some time and really want to sort of bring educators together over the course of the next year or so with the new HL. Right. Okay. Uh, oh, probably the only other thing to say is that um, during these podcasts, we're going to be reviewing papers. If you have papers that you've read, uh, you think are pretty are interesting, then let us know, suggest a paper, or even get back to us with some of the feedback and uh, points about papers we've reviewed. We're always interested to hear what our listeners think. Uh, and you may even actually want to become a panel member. Let us know and we'll, um, we'll do what we can to get you involved. So this week's article is an interesting one. Uh, We decided to choose it on the basis, well, we had a number of papers to choose, and uh, we came up with this one because it was actually something which we felt was relevant to everyday practice. So the name of the paper is Cognitive Load Theory in Health Professional Education, Design Principles and Strategies. And it's written by education psychologists um, John Sweller and Jerodin Van Merenboer. And these are the people who came up with Cognitive Load Theory way back and uh, they've decided to write a paper with how this could be applied in medical education. Uh, So it's not really an empirical study as such, it's more of a review article, uh, but it's very practical. It has a lot of examples about how you can then use these, the principles they describe in delivering teaching. I've put it out to my other two panel members really, when you just, is this sort of a a theory that you, you find yourself using or referring back to or find useful? The whole uh, thought of cognitive load theory is really interesting, both in in teaching and in actual real life. Actually, how um, 
how we manage our cognitive loads, how we help our students to manage their cognitive loads. And that's why the paper was eye-catching to me straight away. And um, some of the points are really, really very um, applicable to learning. So I'm looking forward to go through the paper a little bit more. Yeah, so again, I found it a very interesting um, concept after having read through the paper several times, actually, just to get my head around some of the uh, nomenclature. I've come to realize that actually a lot of it is applicable even on the shop floor as an educator. So not necessarily in a formal education teaching, but also applicable whilst doing a ward round, for instance, or an education moment within the clinical settings. So, yeah, again, I look forward to going through it, to it in more detail so that we can give examples to our educators out there. You know, cognitive load theory been around for a little while now, and there's certainly papers that are probably a little bit more up to date than this one. But this, I think... Uh, you know, whilst it was published in 2010, uh, because it was published by the sort of founders of, of this theory and, and sort of the initial testing of this theory, I think it makes it sort of one of those papers that will be referenced by uh, a lot of papers when they look back on cognitive load theory in whatever area they apply them to. So, um, and, and there is certainly in the notes for this podcast, we'll, we'll reference a few more papers, one of which is an Amy guide. Um, and another is a, a, another systematic review. But again, they, they reference this paper and actually there's, they're, they're quite similar in the things that come across. So um, I thought we'd just start with a bit of an outline of cognitive load theory, uh, just for those of you who haven't come across it before. It was developed in 1980s and it really focuses on uh, the functions of working memory. Uh, if you're not familiar with working memory, there's the human memory model, uh, which was developed probably 20 years beforehand. And that works on the basis that you have three types of memory. One is starts with your sensory memory. So information comes in through your sensory memory. Whatever you pay attention to enters your working memory. And then you can encode things into your long-term storage, uh, which is your long-term memory. And, it, and it, I suppose it's a little bit similar to how uh, a computer, you might think of a computer working with, with your RAM being your working memory and your hard drive being your, your long-term storage. And it's in the long-term storage that you develop these schemas. And we'll be talking a little bit about schema formation and schema access. But essentially, those are sort of structures on which you've pinned a lot of information so they can, it all starts to come together. So these schemas are your kind of global understanding of a particular topic. The principle with working memory is that it has a finite capacity. And you'll hear some people talk about the 7 plus 2 or 5 plus 2 items. This is what we think in terms of the capacity of working memory. You can hold in there depending on the complexity of those items between five and nine different items and the other thing about working memory is that we think that it's pretty good at processing in parallel things that are presented in a visual format and things that are presented in an audio format or, or language so there is this kind of dual processing ability of working memory the principles that are put across in this paper is really how to make sure that we change the way we deliver teaching uh, and encourage people to learn by being aware of how our working memory does its job uh, and, and we can actually reduce some of the load that we put on that working memory capacity. So um, when we talk about load, we talk about intrinsic load, which is the complexity of the topic itself, the volume of information to be learned. The extrinsic load is things that are really unrelated to the topic altogether. So it's really to do with how you present that information, how it's delivered. And then there's also germane load, which is the processing of the topic knowledge which leads to learning that's how they describe it in the paper but it's it's a probably best to think about it as your learning strategies how effective your learning strategies are so hopefully that's a reasonable summary of cognitive load theory um, there is a clearly a lot more to it but hopefully that gives you the bare bones and i think we've all 
specific things we want to pull out of the paper. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll probably go to uh, Deepsy. So I'm going to go straight in there and talk about the processing of the knowledge that leads to learning. So what's called the germane load. And the paper describes something called self-explanation, which is a way that they say would improve the germane load, improve your processing. It's a learning technique that was first described by Qi in 1989, which engages the learner in active learning. And the study claims that when you effectively elaborate an example, it can increase the learning that comes out from it. Um, so I looked further, and uh, and these um, articles can be found in the notes. Um, Chamberlain in 2015 um, described a self-explanation, which is the technique, is based on the fact that the new knowledge is acquired by being actively involved in the construction of that knowledge. So when someone explains or verbalizes to themselves what's going on with this new topic, it uh, encourages active learning of that topic. And they describe it as being um, something that's focused on what you don't know. So the gaps in the knowledge. So the sentences that people come out with when they're performing self-explanation are often fragmented sentences, incomplete sentences. And it is quite different to explaining a topic um, to other people, uh, because when that happens, the information is focused on what you know more, what you what you know best. So self-explanation focuses on what you know least and explaining things to others focuses on what you know most in an aim to fill in the gaps, really. The benefit is actually thought to be the uh, greatest with self-explanation when the problems are more complex. And um, they also talked about, there was another study by Chamberlain, which also talked about how much watching somebody else, so a, a senior, a colleague, um, perform self-explanation can impact on learning. And they actually said watching someone performing self-explanation does not impact on learning unless it is used with uh, prompts to do so. So the prompts that they described were two different types. So either prompts to justify what you know so the prompts could be things like so why is this correct you know what they're saying is correct because and and leave that fragmented or incomplete sentence for them to finish and other prompts would be to um, look at the discrepancies with what they know with what they're hearing uh, and, and that is a way of uh, improving the effectiveness of the techniques so this, I, I find this really interesting because it links in with clinical reasoning. Clinical reasoning, I associate very closely with self-explanation, uh, explaining things to myself out loud. And as clinical reasoning is sought to be defined as the intellectual activity of synthesizing information from a clinical situation and integrating it with previous knowledge and experience and using it for making diagnostic management decisions. And this, again, can form schemas. So when you've, when you've done this synthesis of information, it can, it can form your schemas for future, which Andrew is going to talk about a bit later on. And I actually do do this. I do this quite a lot on, on ward rounds, whether there's anyone listening or not, to be honest. I find it useful for myself. I do often wonder whether juniors feel that, oh, my goodness, she doesn't know what she's talking about because she's having to go through all the options out loud even if nothing else I think that's quite valuable because it's useful for them to know that 
we don't have all the answers and it's okay to think things through, open things up for discussion and, and not know at the end of the day. Uh, Paris, do you, do you ever find yourself in this situation? Definitely. When I'm reviewing patients on the intensive care unit, I often start talking to myself saying, okay, this is happening because of X, Y, and Z, and this is happening mm-hmm. because of whatever, and then start thinking about the diagnosis. And I do get people looking at me very funnily, particularly mm-hmm. the nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I get other junior doctors looking at me thinking, am I supposed to answer that question? Or is that a question he's asking himself? What's quite going? It's almost having like, a conversation with yourself. Yes. But out loud. <laughs> so yeah, I, I totally understand why um, you might be a bit apprehensive in terms of what other people are thinking um, at the time. But it, it certainly helps um, work things out and and vocalizing it also allows other people to know what actually you're thinking and if there's any bits of information that you may not have processed in order to make certain decisions it allows those people to around you to fill in those gaps and and then therefore it just becomes a discussion another example where we and i suppose andrew would know about this as well in terms of um, exams so royal college exams um, we have a viva um, in the Viva, we get asked questions about whichever topic. But for me, the only way to revise for these sort of exams is to do it in front of a mirror. So self-explanation of cardiovascular physiology, talking it out loud and realising that actually you don't know it that well. That sort of self-explanation of having to go through it really helped me then form those schemas so that when it came to the actual exam, I was able to uh, perform on that exam. Yeah, I think that the way I looked at it, it was um, very much an elaboration type of learning and that you take a topic and you may not know much about it, but you, you sort of get lost, if you like, in the subject and go yeah. off on a, down a rabbit hole and exploring something maybe to a greater degree of detail than you would have, would have otherwise. And I, and I think that elaboration is certainly recognised as an effective learning strategy. Um, I think that the self-explanation bit of it, probably the important thing is to make sure that there's a way of filling in those gaps when you encounter them because I suppose sometimes you can I'm thinking about times where maybe I've been stuck with a clinical condition or a clinical presentation I'm I'm just sort of coming up against a brick wall and I don't quite know what's going on but I but I'm trying to work it out but then you're still coming to a point where you think I still don't quite fully understand it it's not it doesn't quite sit right um, and I and I don't know whether that's the same sort of thing I mean it's a little bit like you know, maybe it sort of overlaps a little bit with Daniel Kahneman's description of type one thinking, type two, system one, mm. system two thinking. And when your heuristics, when your rules of thumb fail, yeah. you go back to that really deep kind of rationalization that's quite slow, quite laborious. And yeah. whether whether that's the same sort of thing, I'm not sure. But but I certainly agree with you. Talking out loud in the clinical environment, I think is a is a really valuable thing to do. And I remember when a consultant did do that, it really did open up. Um, more than just the learning side of things, it was like a cultural thing. It, it made people feel comfortable not knowing, comfortable to ask questions. Um, and, and I guess you probably need a reasonable amount of confidence to be able to do that. Um, and I, I suspect maybe that comes with the more senior years or maybe maybe it gets more difficult with senior years because actually maybe there's an expectation on senior trainees to know what they're talking about rather than admit what they don't know. But yeah, no, I, I do like this idea of self-explanation, but I, and I guess I, like I say, I look at it as a kind of a elaboration of a topic that you don't know about and mm. going off and learning about it. Oh, great. So um, I think that that was, was what I wanted to talk about with, uh, that was what I wanted to pull out from the article. Um, so I'm going to move 
on to um, Andrew, I think. Yeah, so I, I pulled out a few things from this from the paper. I mean, there's so many things that I think you could take away, and, and there's some great tables in the paper that, that illustrate the points that they're making. If, if some of the technical stuff is difficult, you can always go to the example. But for me, I think um, one of the points they made about the schemas, so these are these kind of big blocks of knowledge that are more integrated in your long-term memory, making some of those schemas automated. So aspects of that of performance that are transferable across different situations. When, when I read that in the paper, I start, started to think, well, that's definitely applicable with the new Royal College of Anesthetists curriculum. The old Royal College curriculum very much taught specialty, surgical specialty-based modules. So you, you'd go off and you'd learn an ENT, do an ENT list as an ENT module, and you'd get some competencies signed off there. And then you'd go across and do uh, general surgery, upper GI surgery, for example. And then you'd repeat that across all the different specialties and you get things signed off. And actually, the new curriculum says maybe there's a lot more stuff that's common to all anesthetics and we lump them all to so if you're giving a general anesthetic maybe there's actually a big chunk of that is fairly generic whether you're doing ENT or upper GI and actually the bits we should be focusing on is making those general bits making them automatic so then actually you're freeing up your cognitive abilities to focus on the nuances the, the little things um, that, that are different between each surgical specialty and I, I don't know if that was the rationale behind the new curriculum but maybe we should be thinking about cross-linking bits of learning or bits of the training which may be relevant to the bit that we're teaching um, and trying to make sure that we tap into those schemas that may be automated or help them become automated so that so that we can sort of focus on on more of the nitty-gritty rather than trying to teach the same thing over again in a different way. I certainly like to try and cross-link knowledge across as much as possible but I don't know if that's something which maybe we can do in clinical practice. I suppose in anaesthetics there's you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of overlap between surgical specialties, for example, but I wondered if there's any other ways maybe in your own practice that you could sort of pull in that, um, the sort of common themes from different situations. I don't know if there's any any examples that, that you can think of. So for me, in terms of these uh, automated schemas, it, the thing that for me is primarily checklist, but like you said, Andrew, I think the drive for anesthetics is to create this sort of um, generic skills list. And I think even from the GMC, there's a there's a drive to create a generic skills competencies that should be reflected on all the curriculum from all the different Royal Colleges. So the only one I could think about in clinical medicine was history taking when um, students have uh, their history taking checklists. Um, but I've got actually a really interesting point that I want to bring this back to when you talk about your your third point, actually. So I'm going to um, leave it there for a minute and then come back to it in your third point, Andrew. OK, well, I'll move on, I'll move on to the other uh, the second point that I I pulled out from this paper. It's called the variability principle, and that's to do with optimizing your germane load. So what's interesting here is that actually we've talked a lot, the paper talks a lot about reducing your extraneous load in a way to kind of free up your working memory capacity. What this then proposes, increasing your intrinsic load. So, okay, you present the information in a good way, you reduce your, your extraneous load, but in order to optimize your germane load, you present more intrinsic knowledge so more stuff that has to be linked in and you're essentially trying to create some interference between different topics or I say different topics but they are related for me this sounded very much like mixed practice when we talk about effective learning strategies there's this demonstrable difference between massed practice versus mixed mixed practice so when you pick up a book and you say I'm going to learn about 
the kidney, um, you're going to learn all about the kidney in that chapter, and then you move on to the next chapter of physiology, which will be the, the GI tract or something. And, and actually, what, what we're saying here is make, mix it up, uh, make it messy, make it um, interact with other pieces of knowledge that you've picked up elsewhere. And I think that's really interesting. And that's something that would it's probably going to be new for a lot of learners. That's what I kind of understood by the variability principle and creating this interference between different things but it, it does go against the grain a little bit because you think well I'm going to be stressing the learners more with all this extra information uh, but it's actually them figuring out how it all connects and is is related um, so I'm not quite sure how I might do that in practice um, I guess you know maybe teach a topic in bite-sized chunks but not all like if you're going to teach the kidney you're going to teach a bit of anatomy a bit of physiology a bit of pharmacology but you won't all teach it on in blocks you'll just mix each bit together with with the next bit and you do it in little chunks rather than all as big blocks i don't know if what what your experiences are in in this domain i mean uh, maybe you already maybe you came through medicine learning in a much more mixed way or maybe you sort of categorized it a bit better well, while you were talking uh what struck me was this is problem-based learning type of an approach. Um, it's not how I came through medical school, although things were moving towards part problem-based and part structured learning. So um, we started off uh, medical school with the more structured, you're going to learn everything about this subject before you move on to the next subject. Uh, and then we part, part way through, I can't remember where it was, probably in year two, we went through uh, more problem-based learning, a small group looking at a um problem so a, so a disease uh, nephrotic syndrome which had a bit of the kidney but also had a bit of, quite a bit of physiology and then it had electrolyte imbalances um, and then draw in a bit of pharmacology in that as well so and that's uh, d- definitely how most uh, most places are taught now and um, importantly as well it's how the students are quite used to being examined so um short answer questions for example will um will, will show show this quite quite well when you start off with a clinical problem and the questions will include some physiology some anatomy some pharmacology uh, and uh, but all hinged around one clinical scenario which uh, they do seem to respond to quite well so that's what struck me when you were talking about this Andrew. I think there's a almost like a natural tendency to categorize things in one's mind and particularly uh, in medicine where you have body systems as the obvious focus so people try and you know, learn through categorizing into kidney and or lungs or, or whatever topic they're doing. So I think there's always that tendency. But in terms of interlinking, it definitely works, particularly when I was revising for my final year medical school, when I did start interlinking things more and creating those different synapses, essentially, it helped me remember the schemas that we talked about earlier much better. So I was able to recall those schemas uh, at the time of the exam much better. The other thing is that clinically, often we can go back and forth looking at, again, parts of the body, but also, like you suggested, the uh, other way of doing it is looking at physiology, pharmacology or anatomy and so on and interlinking it through that method, but quite often going back and forth between different patients and linking it between, okay, uh, actual experiences. So without creating it over overload of massive information, we can interlink it between a different clinical experience and say, actually, this situation appeared similarly to another patient that we saw earlier on in the ward round, for instance, or another patient we treated, creating that sort of link and variability through that method as well. So not just knowledge-based, but also bringing in experiences as well. 
Yeah, I think I think that's definitely that's a very valid point, actually. Uh, and in fact, I'd, I remember that was probably a moment where I decided at medical school that anaesthetics was for me is you'd had two years of preclinical, uh, all this kind of knowledge. And as soon as you stepped into theatre and someone started to explain why it is that um, you have to give glycoparolate with neostigmine, it would all kind of start to come together. And you think, oh, right. OK. And I think you're right that being able to hang your knowledge onto some clinical examples, which, you know, are real, they're, they're lived. Um, I think that that's a really powerful, powerful way to sort of teach, you know, whether there's ways you can point people towards taking in information in their clinical environment will, will help that sort of recall for doing the job, let alone, you know, past exams. Uh, I'll go on to my last point, And I think this is quite an interesting one. It probably doesn't come under just education. And that is the uh, expertise reversal effect, uh, effect that they describe in the paper. And I, and I suppose I'm probably a little bit surprised that they only had a couple of paragraphs on this right at the end. Um, and I've certainly come across this effect, uh, as I say, in papers on clinical safety and safety science. Uh, and this is essentially when you take someone who's an expert and force them to use a tool or a checklist or something which forces them to present their information or act in a certain way, when actually they've gone beyond that, they're actually at a point of it all being automatic for them and they, they cover the ground just in a way that's familiar for them. And so essentially what they say here is you, you, for novice people, using models, using our uh, protocols and things is, is quite useful, but actually you can have an opposite, no effect or even a, an opposite effect on the expert learner. You know, why is this? I, I think they suggest that it's, it's because an experienced learner is actually, you've created more extraneous load for them when they are forced to use a model that doesn't fit with their way of doing things. So you've created more extraneous load. Uh, and I certainly think that is true. But, you know, I'm thinking my own examples of, you know, if I'm having a conversation with a colleague over the phone, I don't use an SBAR uh, model to communicate with with my other colleagues. I kind of have my own way of doing it. I suppose you'd have to ask them whether it comes across as coherent or not. But when I have to use the SBAR, it generally falls apart because I'm not used to doing that. I guess I've become comfortable with the types of conversations I'm having to use, you know, my own way of doing that. Um, so anyway, so it kind of feels right for me, the expertise reversal effect. I've, I've read it elsewhere. Um, so when they talk about applying it to teaching, they, they talk about really moving your learners up Bloom's taxonomy. So Bloom's taxonomy is one of those pyramids that talks about levels of learning. And you start off with the very basic stuff like knowledge and application of that knowledge to scenarios. But actually right at the top, you've got things like critique, uh, synthesis and analysis. So here they suggest that actually you can give your learners, um, if you're going to talk about treating a certain condition, you may actually start with more advanced learners, you give them a, uh, a treatment plan and then you get them to critique it and then to edit it and make it better. So you're actually appealing to those higher levels in Bloom's taxonomy rather than just going through a worked example. Um, so you can, you can start off with the critique, then you can start off with, then move to something which is maybe a bit uh, like an incomplete treatment plan. And then you can then move them into the point where they can go from nothing they have to create that that plan so maybe we do this automatically maybe we know that if we're teaching a more advanced group we we construct our exercises and construct our sessions a bit differently um i don't know what what your experiences are with this expertise reversal effect have you have you experienced that for yourselves so before you even 
mentioned this before we'd even come across this article actually a couple of weeks ago some medical students said to me that they found that taking a history which is the schema from your point one um, taking a history and using a history model for a specific presenting complaint um, obviously I'm teaching the medicine block um, they said that when they used the model that they'd learned for that uh, complaint it was um, actually impinging them because they felt they'd gone beyond that and they had their own way of doing it. And uh, I said to them, well, you know, that's a, a mature approach because when you do have your own way of talking about a particular presenting complaint or a, a situation, a, a clinical scenario, then you won't necessarily go down the history um, schema that I didn't call it a schema, but the model that you that you've seen in books and that you've learned. Um, and I thought that was that was quite interesting. And I didn't know that there was a name for it. I just explained it to him as um, this is a mature way, um, a more expert way of approaching a problem is not to be um, using a fixed model, but using your own way of doing it. And it was a student that actually said this to me, um, which now having read the article, I think, hmm, as he is it, I, I hope he's not just gone ahead and, and, and found his own way to the detriment of the other knowledge that he doesn't know, you know, the unknown unknowns. Um, but that was that was really interesting. And that's what I wanted to bring back to your first point about schemas is he felt that he was already got some of his own way. And I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting that he'd said that to me. And then when I read this, I thought, oh, that's what he was. This is the name for it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That, um it's quite difficult then isn't it because you're at quite an early stage in your learning mm. and and you're thinking well they're not expert but maybe nope. they have they have a reason why I have experience in a certain area maybe they had a previous career or something and, it, and they've got their own way of doing things or they've mm. been a, they've been in healthcare you know during their undergraduate time uh, it's an interesting one isn't it? it 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 feels uneasy to sort of say oh yeah use your own technique if you're mm. that early on in your in your training but he certainly yeah. had a very mature approach to it, and I, I did warn him against missing bits that he didn't know about yet. So whilst you are becoming more and more confident, it may be wise to just still have that tip list, that model to to go through so that you didn't miss it. But he did feel like, you know, he had this way of approaching certain scenarios, not everything, obviously, but certain presenting complaints that he felt he didn't have to go back to the model. Sometimes if you learning to take a history it can feel a bit formulaic and I suppose mm. you know if you're conscious of the fact that your rapport with the patient maybe is is being negatively impacted by that you may decide actually I, I want to make it a bit more free-flowing and a bit more natural it like was just conversational that. you know and it, it feels mm. less like a checklist so if you're jumping mm -hmm. around in your history the patient's like oh, oh. you know you can see how that might come across as you're not actually listening yeah so yeah yeah I get that yeah, I was just going to say a lot of these, um, you know, particular things like S bar and checklists and things. I find that people um, can experiment with them almost. So I think, like like you said, Andrew, with again with the example with the S bar, you used it a few times and found that actually your handovers were just falling apart. And and the same for me, uh, particularly with S bar, I have my own way of doing it. And I don't even think I don't even think it fits it within S bar, but I certainly don't think about it. Um, so that's just one example. And I've often come across uh, working with 
um, consultants who have been practicing anesthesia for years and they have their own way of doing certain procedures. But now with the introduction of LOXIT forms and having to do certain steps that they're not used to doing it, I've actually seen it throw people off a little bit and, and create a bit of frustration in the workplace. I definitely hear you and I think checklists, I mean that's a science in itself really and I think if, if anyone is involved with checklists or wants, has opinions on checklists, I, I very much suggest that they um, just take a look at the checklist manifesto by Atul Gawande and that it's actually the science behind what makes an effective checklist um, and I think sometimes with the best intentions uh, some of the checklists that are produced some of the protocols that we create are done because we think they are right but maybe they haven't quite hit the mark and I, and I think that's probably where we run into problems um, but I, I certainly don't think this is a, a call to sort of throw out you know models and checklists and things like this it's just that if you're finding that someone's struggling to use a model or a checklist or something then you know maybe just explore that a little bit but it you know maybe the way to think about it is it's to get everyone onto a certain up to a certain level uh, of minimum performance uh, like your novices to reach that level where they can interact relatively well with the rest of the healthcare environment but yeah just a, an interesting one one to think about um, and I think it's applicable in all areas of practice not just not just when we're teaching so those are my three points uh, i'm going to hand over to paris and he's got some points he wants to bring up from the paper too paris yeah so we've talked uh, quite a bit about um decreasing or in some instances increasing intrinsic load and um we've talked a little bit about germane load and i think there's, there's a lot of focus in this paper also about decreasing extraneous load so I think um, Andrew has already mentioned that extraneous load is about how information or the teaching session is presented. And the, again, the table which summarizes the methods to decrease the extrinsic load or extraneous load is, is quite good and it sort of summarizes these points. The two points within within decreasing extraneous load that I've that popped out to me were the split attention principle and the modality principle. So Sort of starting off with the split attention principle. Um, so this talks about how we can replace multiple sources of information that's either distributed in time or space and make it into one piece of information that's presented in, in one picture or diagram or presented at the time of use. So an example of a temporal split attention would be if we were in the clinical skills unit where we were taught how to cannulate with certain pieces of equipment um, and then we didn't perform any uh, procedures, we didn't do any cannulations until we were on the ward and we then having to perform that clinical school at that time. So it's almost like saying, well, would it be better actually to be just shown how to perform that procedure at that time rather than being shown on a video or something before and then being asked to do it later on? The other one would be spatial split attention. So that's looking at using a diagram to explain part of the text, um, but not having a diagram and then a full sort of explanation underneath it. But a question for the team would be, um, how many times have you guys been shown something um, and then not had to do it for a while and then suddenly being faced with a situation where you've, you've got it in front of you and thinking, oh, okay, yeah, I, I watched a video on how to do this. Um, um, but here I am now trying to do it in a in a real life situation um I, I don't know whether you guys have got any examples where that's happened to you yeah yeah i, I think that's definitely true. i mean like, you know you can think of any course or conference that you go on you know it's there's a lot of time there's theoretical bits that are covered in a in a talk and then you go back to your clinical practice and you may not come across a clinical application of what you've heard for some time but i suppose it, it 
probably depends on the level of your expertise um, or background knowledge at the time. You know, if you're trying to explain how to do a cannula and you've never learned about cannulation before, like putting a cannula in, then that's going to be a bit tricky for a novice just to have it taught in one place, the theory of it, and watch a video, and then have to then practice it on another day in a different place. Uh, but actually, if you're talking about manipulating an ultrasound probe to get the best image in someone who already has a lot of ultrasound experience, then actually, yeah, potentially that that is not a problem. And that, I suppose, comes down to the degree of intrinsic load that's needed to process that. And the flip side of thinking about it, I think, is something called congruence. So we talk about you can you hear people sometimes talking about temporal congruence and spatial congruence and essentially that's you know making sure you're adhering to this principle of as you just, as you just, as you said putting things together as much as you can whether that's in time or space making them fit together along like align them yeah no i i totally buy into that one of the things that um i was thinking is potentially using a point of care QR codes and video demonstrations. So, for example, with the new eMed system that's been rolled out across UHL, um, there's a there's an example patient that you can click on um, when you log on to Nerve Center and eMeds, uh, uh, which you can then practice prescribing things on. And I think that's quite helpful because if you're going to prescribe something on patients and you're worried that you might do something wrong, you can have a quick look um, on the practice examples. Um, and another example is if you've got a new ultrasound machine or, or you've got a blood culture kit, there's a possibility of having a small QR code on there, uh, which somebody can just have a quick scan of and use their phones to see the video and say, OK, this is the kit that's in the blood culture taking sample kit and this is what's available to have to take it. So that's a potential project or you know, something, uh, a way of reducing that um, spit attention in terms of um, the temporal part. Uh, I don't know what you guys think or whether you guys have any other ideas. Yeah, I really, I really like the, um, the idea of um, just-in-time learning. And it's very much that. It's very much, you know, at the point of use, you deliver a little bit of content uh, in order to allow someone to, you know, go straight into using whatever that is. It's usually applicable to sort of practical things, you know, skills. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. And the, there's certainly papers out there where they've tried introducing these mini videos or an information sheet to, to take you through how to use a 12 lead ECG machine and, and things. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a recognized thing. And, and I think you're right. I think there's definitely an opportunity there to label things with QR codes. Maybe if you want to use video tutorials, um, and I, you know, I've always thought that there's bits of kit out there, which we use maybe infrequently that could really do with that. Um, whether it's, setting up a monitor on an anesthetic machine or even doing an anesthetic machine check for people who are maybe, um, you know, rotated out and then have come back after six months or a year uh, or pacing wires and temporary pacing boxes, you know, a little kind of quick tutorial on what all the, no all the knobology basically and how to, how to use it. So I, I definitely think there's a place and I think it would be a neat little project to, to do. And so that's yeah, maybe one for, maybe one for the future. The other decreasing extraneous load point that uh, I had was about modality attention. So modality attention looks at um, the fact that different parts of the brain have different processing power. So for example, visual versus or auditory. And you can overload one completely and therefore create a, uh, an extraneous load, which reduces your domain load and reduces learning. And a, and a prime example of that, which we see sort of time and time and again, is with lectures and presentations whereby 
we have a PowerPoint presentation which has got tons of text, which is then read out by the presenter. Despite trying to avoid this, we still tend to do it. And it definitely does have an effect on reducing the amount of learning and points taken away from the lecture because people definitely switch off. The question to the panel again is, why do we still do that? Why do we still put loads of information on the PowerPoint slides? And is there a way we can sort of avoid that? So I've actually tried to do this before um, on slides. Uh, I keep the slides minimal and talk more. The problem is, um, Students like to have all the information on the slides. They like to have copies of the slides. And I wonder if that's because they think that the lecture or the talk, the presentation is a way of them to accumulate the knowledge. They're well aware that their short term memory can only hold seven plus or minus two pieces of information. And therefore, they feel that they need that information later so that they can learn it later, as opposed to what we're suggesting is active learning at the time of seeing that presentation. So if they were having few uh, little information on, on the page and more being spoken, they could be assimilating and actively learning this information whilst the presentation is going on, as opposed to uh, trying to take in bits, but knowing that their short-term memory isn't isn't big enough to possibly take in all of it, so they have to have everything that's been said to them um, for a later point when they will put it into their long-term memory uh, and process it in whichever way they whichever way they feel best. I think the the idea that the the lecture slides actually form the handout is what makes us put a lot of information on onto the slides because the alternative is then to create a separate handout sheet mm. um so yeah you, you know you can kind of kill two birds with one stone but it does you know to the detriment of of your your presentation because like you say you're essentially putting so much information up there and in some ways by doing that you're kind of demotivating your learner to, to engage with the content because there's just yep. so much up there in medicine i feel like if you have to give up some give some teaching or if you're asked to do some some teaching or training the default is just to reach for powerpoint and so what you then use powerpoint for is a bit of a brain dump um and just create loads of slides and you put loads of stuff on there mm. and that's kind of your starting point but then it then you worry that you're going to forget stuff and then i suspect that's why a lot of information ends up staying on the slides because you think oh, i've just got to remember to talk about that and i can't forget that and one of the big things on the teaching improvement course for the micro teachers, people do tend to use PowerPoint. This is something we tackle head on and go, yeah, this content actually put it in the presenter notes and maybe we can use a, a diagram in this point to explain this this concept and maybe your whole sentence can be shortened to one word. And I think there's a stepwise process in getting people to to move in that direction. You know, um, you can't just go straight to pictures uh, and no texts, but but I th but it is a it is a, a big thing and it's, it's something that's always on my mind when I'm asked to give a presentation or do a teaching session. Focus more of your time on trying to create links with other pieces of information that that audience has like prior knowledge or using anecdotes and examples. Then I think you make the content a lot more sticky. We set goals and objectives before we do a teaching session. But one of the things we don't say is that, OK, the purpose of this particular presentation is X, Y and Z. And from it, you will lead you on to where you can get other more detailed sources of information and making that quite clear before you do a PowerPoint presentation. So that sets the expectations of the learners as well. The other sort of uh, point I had was with confidence. And I think Dipti um, and Andrea, I think both touched on this a little bit, is that um, as a presenter, uh, the more confident and the more times you practice doing your presentation or practice doing your teaching session, 
the less content you will be reliant on on putting on your sources of information. And again, usually it's PowerPoint that I'm talking about, but um, some people have handouts or flip charts and so on. And as you present more and more and get more confident with the topic, you will actually put less information um, uh, and direct learners towards where they can get their sources of information, but also focus on your presentation and doing the actual teaching itself and getting people to really listen to you. And a, and a prime example of some of the best presentations that we see are those TEDx talks, how they talk about certain things that sort of capture the audience. And those are a good place to start to see, okay, this is what, this is the thing they're doing. But a lot of these presenters have confidence. And I think that's the key, I feel, that um, leads you to put less information on some of the PowerPoint start, um, slides. And again, to get confidence, um, the sort of ideas or the sort of technique would be to just practice your presentation, if it's, even if it's in front of a mirror. So you have confidence about the sequence of events and what you need to talk about, what the salient points are. Uh, I think we've certainly covered a lot of ground and uh, I just sort of conscious and given this is our first podcast, so we're trying to keep it to less than an hour. But uh, I guess it's just because it's a, a paper that has so many applications, um, certainly a lot of um, food for thought there. And I'm sure we could continue to talk about uh, some of the other some of the other points as well. But um, but no, we've got to bring it to a close. Um, I haven't actually thought about how we close these podcasts. I think the main points, firstly, is the split attention and making things congruent as much as you can. So aligning what you're presenting, both verbally and visually, uh, but also aligning it in time and space so that you're, it's, it's become easier for people to assimilate that uh, and, and integrate them in, into their own schemas. The other is basically making learning messy making things cross-link between existing schemas or trying to automate some schemas that are common to a, to a lot of different practices. Probably overall, really, just how a theory isn't just one of those things that sits on a, sh on a dusty shelf and only academics talk about. This is really about how educational theory can be used to, to influence in a meaningful way the, the, the way we deliver training. We'll stick the uh, reference on the uh, podcast handout. We'll also reference some of the other papers we've mentioned uh, for those of you who are interested in reading a little bit more about uh, cognitive load theory, specifically with relation to um, healthcare and, and medical practice. Uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast and we'll see you for the next one. But for now, it's uh, <laughs> goodbye from Dipti. Goodbye. Goodbye from Paris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Faculty Focus podcast. If you like the episode, please share with friends and colleagues. You can also like and subscribe to the show and perhaps even leave us a review. Clinical education can be tough, but we are stronger as a community. So if you have an idea for an episode or would like to come and talk to us, do get in touch via email or Twitter. Details in the show notes. The Faculty Focus podcast. Community. Development. Showcase.